Today, we're looking at the latter part of 21, and we're looking at him cursing the fig tree. The Pharisees questioned his authority because of what he had done in the temple. And then there's a parable of two sons. But before we jump into the text today, I want you to turn over to Zechariah chapter 11 and Hosea chapter 9. Let's go to Hosea first. Hosea chapter 9, go down to verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. The fig tree was always a symbol of favor and blessedness. It was always, when the, when the figs were on there, they, it was just a symbol, figs, grapes, but the fig tree was something that God referred to Israel as. And in this passage today, when we're going to read about the fig tree, it's a word picture for Israel. And when he talks about your fathers, I saw your fathers. The fathers are Abraham. The fathers are Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah. Those are the fathers. Those faithful early fathers. Were, what was Abraham told back in Genesis 12? Through you... All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. <clears throat> Remember that? Somewhere along the line, they started following idols, and that's what he talks about in Hosea. And not only did they follow idols, the leaders became more consumed with getting stuff from the people than allowing the people to be used to spread the glory to the rest of the world the way God intended back in Genesis 12. So now we go to Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 11. The passage we're looking at today was a confrontation with the religious leaders who had squandered what God had created them for and, and they got cursed. And we're going to see that when we go back to Matthew. But I want to read this in, in Zechariah 11, starting in verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. He's talking about Israel here. Those who buy them slaughter them and they go unpunished. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. He's talking about shepherds who abuse the sheep, who have a responsibility to care for the sheep, but instead of caring for them, they use them for their power and, and to get money from them for their greed. He says, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hands of his neighbor, 
and each of the into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So, here's where Jesus comes in. I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. A shepherd would usually have a staff and then a smaller staff that he would keep in his belt. The one staff was meant to drive away predators, the large one. The small one was meant to get them back in line, keep them from going where they shouldn't go. One's to protect from without, one's to protect from within. He says, I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep in one month. I destroyed three shepherds. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The three shepherds that were supposed to care for Israel had abused Israel. The three shepherds that were supposed to care for the flock instead fleeced the flock. He says, but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is, it, what is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the people. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And Israel has never been the same since they've rejected Jesus. That's what he's talking about there. Now that's the backdrop for what we're going to read today because what happens when Jesus, remember it's Passion Week, He comes into uh, Jerusalem riding on a donkey on 10 Nisan, which we, we, we talked about we believe was a Monday. And He comes in and, and he goes to the temple, the procession down, but the crowd's swelling. They want him to be king, but he doesn't do anything there other than receive their praise. He turns around from the temple, goes back to Bethany, comes back on Tuesday, and on the way in, he curses a fig tree. And then he goes and he cleanses the temple. Now Matthew condenses Tuesday and Wednesday because what happens is he... He comes back into the temple and the wig tree is the fig tree is withered. But it, it's not the same day. We know that because you go to the Gospel of Mark, the Mark account. Mark is much more concerned with chronology than Matthew is. Matthew's concerned with we getting the point. So he condenses it down to for us to get the point. He spoke, cursed the fig tree, and it withered. That's all Matthew really cares about there. And so we're going to look at the Mark account after we read this initial section. And we're going to look at what he lays out in Mark. Because Mark gives a little more detail about it. But don't miss what, what is going on. He goes in. He cleanses the temple. Curses the fig tree. The, the authorities go, 
who are you to do this? Who, who gave you your degree? Who gave you your authority? And we're going to look at that. And then he tells this parable of two sons. Now, I didn't have you read that, but as I was working through it, I saw yesterday how they were tied in, so I went ahead and we're going to look at that first parable. All three of those parables that follow, in fact, the next two chapters deal with the rejection of the leaders that we just read about over in Zechariah. But we're just going to get into the first one today. And so, open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Let's read Matthew 21, 18 through 32. Starting down in verse 18. Now, it says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first, and he said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. May God bless his word. Three little paragraphs separated for us. Three little pericopes, what they're called, little sections. Each, I think, revealing um, something that God calls us to. The first, with the fig tree, is that God calls us to fulfill our purpose of being a great influence for Him. He calls us to fulfill our purpose of being a great influence. From the very beginning, back in Genesis 12, what did He tell Abraham? Through you... All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Have you ever thought about the fact that you are part of a fulfillment of that promise? That's our purpose. To be a blessing to other people from God through us to bless other people with what? With money? No. With power? No. 
with eternal life. It was always about a relationship with God. The connection to the God of all creation. And, and most of us have spent the majority of our life never telling anybody about this. I mean, that, that is so convicting to me. I mean, I, I've known Christ for over 40 years. Really, 45, 50 years now. And, and I've spent most of my life, oh, I've talked to people. I've gone on mission trips. But I'm talking about most of the time when I wake up in my day, I don't think my purpose is to be an influence for Him in the world. I get trapped in the trappings of the world, just like the people of Israel did. And our our calling is to fulfill our purpose to be an influence. The second little paragraph where he deals with authority is to acknowledge the absolute authority of Jesus Christ in our life. That's another thing we struggle with. I mean, we'll obey Him to a point, <laughs> but what gives Him the right to come into my life and turn over my tables? What gives Him the right to come over and just tell me I'm worshiping all wrong and I'm all messed up? We don't like that. That's why they said, Who, what gives you the right to do this? You don't, have, you don't have the authority to do this. We do the same thing. And then finally, in the last little paragraph with the two sons, he calls us to turn from selfish rebellion and self-righteousness, both illustrated, to repentance and belief. And you know how that's manifested? What it looks like? It looks like obedience. You don't have obedience? means you don't trust. If you don't trust, it's probably because you don't have faith. That's what it really means. The word faith, pistis, means it's an action-producing belief. Not just to intellectually say, oh yeah, I believe that. And, and that's what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with religious people who have spent their life getting for themselves, not fulfilling their purpose of giving and being what God's called them to be. And that's what he's talking about. Flip over to Mark real quick just to give you the, the flow of what's really going on during the week. If you go down to Mark 11, 12. Um, Mark eleven twelve, 12. It says, on the following day, this is after the triumphant entry. So this would be on Tuesday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, we don't know why he was hungry. That was kind of unusual because if you've ever... How many of you guys have been to Israel? Is breakfast a big deal over there? It is, isn't it? I mean, there's so much breakfast you get sick almost, you know. I mean, because they, 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 so he was staying at Mary and Martha's. He obviously would have been fed with the disciples, unless he might have been fasting. Maybe he was he was fasting, praying for the city after what happened, seeing everybody just wanting him to make him the ruler to throw out Rome. We don't know, but he was hungry. It says. And when he saw in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now here's the interesting thing about the fig tree. This time of year was not the time for the fig tree. We know that. I think it says that in another passage. This time of year was early. The fig trees usually budded in May. But something happened before the leaves popped on the tree. The fruit popped on the tree first. Did you know that? Before the leaf ever pops on a fig tree, the fruit pops out. So when you see a leaf, you think there's fruit. That's what was supposed to happen. So there was a leaf on it, but no fruit. And, 
F.F. F. Bruce, who um, has written a lot, commentaries and stuff, and uh, a lot of writings, says that the first one is called a tox, T-A-Q-S-H. And what that is, is before the season of really bearing fruit, that'll be that first little fruit that pops up, and then the leaves will come. And it was nothing there. It was just leaves. Now imagine that. The whole idea is that there was a purpose for that fig tree, which was what? To produce figs. But it didn't do it. It did not do it. And Jesus cursed it. And it was an indictment against Israel. It was a word picture. It was for the disciples to see. They knew what the fig tree represented. And He cursed it. He cursed it. It goes on to say, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And His disciples heard it. Now why does it put that? Because they wanted you to know they heard it. It was for them. He's given them a living illustration. And then it says, And then they came to Jerusalem and He entered the temple. And that's when we talked about He turned over the tables. He drove them out. Go down to verse uh, 20. As they passed by in the morning, or I'm sorry, back up to 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So they go back to Bethany. Then they come back the next day, it says, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And just like that. He spoke it, and it happened. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter don't miss much, does he? And Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. Now, I've heard people take that passage and use it for health and wealth, gospel, uh, to, to promote, you know, this prosperity uh, stuff that's out there. That's not what that means. That's not even what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is taking them back. Remember, He was a rabbi. And how did rabbis teach? A lot of times they would quote something that would take the listeners back to the Old Testament. So this is really cool. Flip back to uh, Zechariah 4 since we were in Zechariah. You know who Zerubbabel is? Zerubbabel was a guy who helped rebuild the temple. And he had a lot of opposition. They didn't want him to rebuild the temple. When he came out of Babylon to go into Rebuilding the temple, there was opposition all around. It was hard for him and Nehemiah and Ezra. They, they had a tough time with it all. But Zerubbabel's task was to go in there and help rebuild it. And in Zechariah 4, go to um, look down at verse 6. And this is what God says through Zechariah, the prophet, to Zerubbabel. And this, then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, 
but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to, to it. In other words, what he's saying in that passage there is, who are you, O opposition, great mountain, people that are coming against what God is doing? And he's telling Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, it's not by your power. It's not by your might. It's by the Spirit of the Lord. And you can take this mountain and it'll flatten Zerubbabel. That's what he's saying. Jesus is referencing that when he's talking to his disciples there in Matthew 21. Guys, I never knew that. I never heard that taught. And until um, I started being taught about how Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, don't fear your opposition, Zerubbabel. It's not what you do, it's what I do through you. It's the same thing Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 4, 19, when he says, listen, follow me and what? I'll make you fishers of men. I'll do the work. See, our deal is we, we've got to fulfill God's purpose in our life. What is that? It's to be an influence for Him. And how are we an influence of Him? It's not just doing good deeds. It's telling people that Jesus is Messiah. He's the King. They don't know what Messiah means. So you tell them, listen, you're never going to have peace with God, the Creator, apart from Jesus. We're that messenger. We're the light that brings that message. And the whole... Zerubbabel's purpose was to go back and build the temple. Zechariah was talking about the temple needed to be rebuilt. You know why? The message of Zechariah, if you reduced it all down into one phrase, is this. Build the temple, build your future. Build the temple, build your future. Why? Because without God, there is no future. That's the whole point. And the, the temple for them was the place that they met God. And so... That same message applies to us, guys. That if we don't connect with God, we have no future. And what Jesus is doing with the fig tree is saying to Israel, I mean to the disciples about Israel, it's cursed. The nation's cursed because they have no fruit. They have all these religious trappings. They have all the phylacteries and they give their tithe, their mint, their cumin, and their, their money. And they fast and they look all gloomy and they do all this religious activity. But it means nothing. Because they're not fulfilling their God-given purpose of being an influence for Him. They were not influencing people for God. They were simply trying to use people to build their power and their influence. And that's what that means. A fruit tree, guys, without any fruit is useless. It's like us seeing, you know, we saw a Bentley outside. Uh, I was walking up, was it you, Bob, that I was walking up? There's a Bentley parked out there, nice-looking car. But I thought, you know, I was thinking about this. What if you got in that car and you turn the key on, nothing happened. You go look and there's no, hood, there's no engine under the hood. It's just a beautiful outside. There's nothing on the inside. It's useless, right? I mean, you can't really do anything with it. It won't move. It won't go in. can't take you. What's the purpose of a car? It gets you from A to B. As good as it looks, as expensive of a, a shell that's on that thing, it doesn't fulfill its purpose. And what was going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, those three shepherds that were supposed to care, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do and they were useless. And Israel had become useless. 
And so that's why he cursed the fig tree. It was an object lesson to the disciples. Then he goes in, he throws over the tables in the temple, and he comes back the next day, and the scribes and the Pharisees, all the leaders, I want you to imagine for a second, all the leaders going, who are you to do this? Who gave you the right? Caiaphas didn't give you the right to this. They're talking. See, we, we forget this is real-time stuff going on. Caiaphas and Annas and all the leaders, the Sanhedrin, there's 70 priests in the Sanhedrin. There's probably another 200 priests that do daily. There's probably over three to 400 priests that are there that witness this, that are saying, who gave you this right? Now, probably some spokesmen were going to ask him, and here's what he said. He said, let me ask you a question, which was very rabbinical, just to throw a question back at the person. He said, let me ask you a question. Was John, who, where did John get his authority, from heaven or from man? Now, he put him in a box there, and he knew he put him in a box. And here's what's crazy. They, they acknowledged in their answer, when they were talking about it over in Matthew 21, when they were talking about it, they said, they said, if we say for man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Did you catch that? They hold that he was a prophet. You see, they sent messengers out to John the Baptist. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you the one that we should be looking for? No, there's one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. But something was different about John. He preached the way the old prophets preached. He preached repentance. That was the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the New Testament. Repentance, repentance, repentance. It's a turning. And they never acknowledged it. And Jesus said, was it from man or God? And here's where they messed up. They're talking and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe? And they're in a bind. But they don't want to acknowledge his authority. They don't want to acknowledge that Jesus has authority from God. Does he have authority? Absolutely. As, as, we've, as we've been studying through Matthew, just to go back, he had authority in his teaching. He had authority over demons. He had authority over healing, over the physical body. We saw him heal the leopards. We saw him heal the blind people. He had authority over casting the demons out of the guy from... Uh, uh, the, the demoniacs. We saw him having authority over nature. And in Matthew 8 and 9, we saw all this demonstrated. He tells nature, shh, and it quiets. He had authority over sin. Remember the paralytic, he said, hey, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? But so you know that I have the authority, take up your bed and walk. He had authority. Over in John 10, Verse 17 and 18, it says he had authority over his own life and his own death and his own resurrection. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. He's also got authority over eternal life. John 17, 2. He's got authority over every one of you who are his. He's got that authority to give us eternal life. None of us come to him on our own. He has the authority to give it to us, and He offers it to us. John 5, 27 says He also has authority to judge, and He will judge when He comes back again. We looked at that last week in Revelation 19, 11. When He comes back again, He ain't coming on a donkey. He's coming on a horse, which is a sign of judgment. 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they didn't want to answer him. And you know what I see in that? If you're silent to me, he says, I'll be silent to you. And he withdraws from pretty much from this point. From what we're going to see now, he's, he's going to go into a tirade on the Pharisees and the religious leaders here with these. The, these parables, guys, are pretty indicting. They're damning to them. And he goes and he goes into the woes. We're going to see that in chapter 23. He will woe to you who do this and do that. You make them twice the sons of hell by trying to proselytize people. Because you're bringing them into a religious system and you reject the authority, the only true authority that should be in your life. Now here's the thing. Do we acknowledge his absolute authority in our life? Because what I find very difficult sometimes is when I get out in the world and I start experiencing some things, either temptation from the enemy or distraction from the enemy, he doesn't have absolute authority in my life sometimes. He has partial authority. That's not the way it's supposed to be. He has absolute, he's an absolute monarch. He is not a constitutional monarch. When he speaks, he has authority. The question is, do we acknowledge that? And they didn't. They didn't want to acknowledge it. And so what he does is he says, neither will I tell you by what authority. In other words, I'm not revealing. And then he goes to proceed to start the indictment. Because he says, what do you think? A guy has two sons. Two sons. One says, okay, I'm, I don't want to work, pops. I don't want to go do this. And then it says he ends up doing it. The other one says, I'm going to do it, but he doesn't do it. And he asked him, who, who, who did it? And you know, when they said the right answer, he didn't say you're right. You know, another time in scripture, when a guy said that, he says, you're right. You almost got it. You're, you're there. He doesn't say that here because it's not about them anymore. You see, he knew their hearts were hardened. Their necks were stiffened. They were stubborn. And he broke the staff union. He broke the staff favor. He broke them and said, you know what? I'm going to be silent to you. Because he tells them this story. And he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, that was a phrase that we used to mean the dregs of the Jewish society. That, that was the most unclean people. Those, that's where Matthew was. Matthew's writing this, and he was one of those. So he says, those people heard the righteousness that John preached. You know what that means when he says that John preached um, the righteousness, the way of righteousness? It's his word. John the Baptist was proclaiming the word of God and those people heard it. And here's what he says. And even when you saw it, in other words, when you see a changed life from that proclamation, still, still, you did not change your minds and turn and believe. Our words don't demonstrate our actions. You can do all the religious things in the world. But the most important thing that he's talking about here, the ultimate act of obedience to God, the ultimate act in anything, no matter what, how many mission trips you've gone on, no matter how much money you've given, no matter how much time you've spent doing religious things, submission to Jesus Christ is the ultimate act of obedience. He's Messiah. He's the only one. Not anything we do earns us favor with God. 
And that is foreign to them. In fact, Tommy Nelson, who's a pastor out in Texas, says good morals, values, righteous acts are foreign currency in God's kingdom. It's like when I go to some rural village up in northern India and I pull out a $20 bill, they look at that like I'm crazy. They don't, they, 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 it means nothing to them. It's no good. Nobody's going to accept it there. And that's what our righteous acts are to God. And he's telling the Pharisees here, listen, you saw these people whose lives were changed. You heard the proclamation from John the Baptist. And neither one of those things brought about repentance because that's what it's about. Turning from our selfish rebellion, which was the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and from our self-righteousness, which was the Pharisees, to repentance and belief. That's what he wants. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Repentance. Repentance is not a dirty word. It's been made a dirty word, but it's not. If you flip over to Hebrews 10, I'm going to close with this. Looking down at verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me ask you a question. If you think that God would bring crucifixion to his son, a crucifixion for us is distant. We don't see it. We see it in pictures. We might have seen the Passion of the Christ, which was pretty good representation, but even that I don't think does... I want you to imagine people strewn out all on the streets on those crosses and you hearing them cry out because they said it was painful, it was excruciating, and the Romans crucified thousands of people. And if God allowed his son to go through that who was perfect, what do you think he's going to do to people who spurn what his son did for us? You see, we don't, we don't appreciate it because we're not there. We, we're so far removed sometimes from it, we don't even think about what he did. And we don't think about the fact that we need him. And that's what the disciples were struggling with here. They didn't get it either. They're thinking they're already with him, and it's just about what they're going to get, not what's been given for them. Our righteous acts, our acts of submission, guys, ultimately or a response to what he's done for us. It's, it's because we, we thank him and we love him and we say, thank you, God, for saving me. And, and when we realize that, we want to live out our purpose. You, you know what, Amos? You don't have to tell new believers to share their faith with people. You don't. They want to tell that they've been delivered. They want to tell that God delivered them from following idols and from following sinful things and that he saved them, he's redeemed them. Not anymore. We don't talk about sin anymore. We talk about issues people have. We, we, we sugarcoat or we lighten the impact of these words 
because our culture doesn't like them. Our culture says, oh, that's just too dogmatic, that's too traditional. And the truth is, sin is a terrible thing. To fall into the hands of the living God and his wrath is something that we all should take serious and we should be fulfilling our purpose. I was so convicted. There was a guy at the YMCA that I saw almost every day and I kept feeling a prompting to go talk to him. He was in his 70s. He was a former Navy guy. You know, I tried to talk to him one time and he kind of blew me off when I got in the spiritual. But I kept feeling a prompting in the last couple of weeks. I'd see him and I'd go, I need to go over and talk. And I look at my watch. I don't have time. I got to go. And uh, this morning at the SWAT, one of the guys that works out the Y with me told me he passed away yesterday, unexpectedly. And I, I just felt this dagger in my heart because I'm going, you know, and listen, I'm not saying his salvation is not dependent upon my obedience. It's not. God's too merciful for that. He wouldn't do that. But for me, for me, who ignored those promptings, I walked by him at least two weeks where I sensed I needed to go say something to him, and I just kept putting it off. And there was a reason. And it's for me. I mean, I'm sitting there, and I'm going, am I living out my purpose? Because I get distracted with all these other things that are going on. Guys, don't let the enemy distract you. We have a purpose to be a light to people. To inquire, hey, how are you doing? Do you ever think about spiritual things? We have a purpose. Are we living out his purpose? Do we acknowledge and live under his absolute authority? Do we? Because if we don't, we need to come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. And I told him this morning, I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I was so wrong. I, I sensed you moving me to do that. And I ignored that. I'm sorry. Thank you for the cross. He doesn't want us to live in condemnation, but he does want us to repent and turn. That's why he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins. And here's the last thing to think about. Have I repented and believed? Have I really repented and believed that he's Messiah? Not what do I say like the son who said it but didn't do it. What have I done? Does my life indicate that? I'm going to get this list and close our time in prayer. And as I do, I want you to think about those three questions. Are you living out your purpose? Are you acknowledging his authority and, and living under it? And are you re repenting and believing in him as Messiah?